You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So there's going to be some preliminary things that um, serve as a foundation. So uh, this is going to be a long-standing class. So if everything that you think about evangelism is not said today, don't worry. Hopefully it will be said at some point. Okay. Well, God's people are witnesses. And of course, in Scripture, witness is a technical term it has a judicial nuance or a um, judiciary, a courtroom nuance. Witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, for example, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So you can see it has this judicial nuance. The idea of a witness is one who appears in court and testifies to the truth or the falsehood of something. That's a witness, biblically speaking. Matthew 18, 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, that's in the context of discipline in the church. You remember if your brother sins, you go to him privately and so forth. If he doesn't repent, you take some witnesses with you. So these witnesses are there to verify the truth or falsehood of something. So idea, the idea is God's people are witnesses. And we are, as we'll see later, we are in, enlisted to verify the truth of God's dealing with humankind and the truth of Jesus Christ. The Ninth Commandment prohibits bearing false witness, especially in public judicature. God is true. Jesus is the truth. And of course, the third person we're told in Scripture is the spirit of truth. So the triune God is true. He is the true and living God. And the sanctity of truth, the ninth commandment, has to do with the sanctity of the being of God as the true and living God. We value truth because he's the true God. This is a little bit loud. I'm sorry. It's sort of reverberating in my... A lot of things reverberate in my head, but I don't need anything else coming in. Um, so the sanctity of truth has to do with the sanctity of the being of God, who is the true and living God. This is why we value truth. This is why truth is important, because God is true. Jesus is the incarnate truth. And so the ninth commandment prohibits us from bearing false witness. And if we're going to be witnesses to the gospel, which is what evangelism basically is, we're testifying to the truth of God's salvation in Christ. <clears throat> and as we'll see, we're not responsible for the response. We're responsible for the proclamation the witness. So if we're going to be true, it's because God is true, and he values truth. And this gets back into the whole discussion of, is there such a thing as a good lie? And I think to, to lie 
is to dishonor, to disparage, to defame the very name and being of God, who is the true God. So we are to be truthful because God is truthful, <clears throat> and his arch enemy, the devil, is the father of lies. There is the antithetical relationship, if there's any relationship, between them. God is true, the devil is false. And so we are to be true. Witnesses, you might remember, were the first to execute the sentence in a trial in which they bore witness, and they would be punished with the same penalty if they bore false witness. So if you appeared, if you suborned false witnesses, and they gave false testimony and it was discovered, then you would be the recipient of the sentence that you were trying to inflict on the other. If a witness withheld testimony, and this is important, it was considered a punishable crime. So it's not just bearing false witness, it's withholding the truth. It's not um, offering a complaint to others when something is in error. The responsibility of a witness is very important, biblically speaking. You didn't have a choice, <laughs> in other words. So the theological significance of a biblical witness has to do with vindicating the veracity of God. A lot of times in our evangelism, when we bear witness, it's not just to save the soul. That soul may not be saved. As a matter of fact, oftentimes, and more often than not, the witness is used to harden the sinner. You know, we take... Um, Stats, how many conversions, how many decisions for Christ, and so forth. Well, not too often do you find how many hardened hearts. But God uses the witness for his purposes, and that's one of his purposes. And what we do then is we vindicate the truth of God. You might be discouraged if you think about it. We'll look at Isaiah and Jeremiah. Both of them had ministries that were very discouraging. <laughs> You're going to go to people who are not going to listen to you, even though they... Here, they're going to people that cannot see, even though they can see. That's your ministry. You harden the nature of Israel. And that's evangelism. Because they're vindicating the veracity of God. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, of course, referring to Jesus Christ. So there we have the ultimate witness, whose ministry, I think, ended up at the beginning, probably with, what, 12, maybe 11? There was probably more because 120 of them gathered on the day of Pentecost. But Jesus Christ bore witness. <clears throat> and most of his witness, the influence of his witness in most people was that it hardened them. God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven. So God bears witness. And so we bear witness after the manner of God. This is just preliminary. Any questions at this point? Okay. Oh, Sue? Yeah. Um, God's word will not return void, ever. So when his word, when his truth goes forth, it will do one of two things. It will either soften the heart and draw to Christ, right? The spirit makes it effective. Or it will harden the heart and drive them further away. No one ever encounters the truth of God without being affected one way or the other, ever. You can come in and sit in a service if you're not a believer, and you can sit there and hear the word of God. It may convert you. If the Spirit is pleased to change your heart, it'll convert you. Hopefully that happens. If it doesn't, 
It drives you further away. It makes you harder than you were before. You're changed in a bad direction. It's according to the will of God. But his word will not return void. So, you know, we, we preachers, we get self-conscious and we're like, oh, you know, it didn't do anybody any good. I proclaimed the, the truth of God, but it was just worthless because there was no decisions, no conversions, no revival. No. If you're faithful, <clears throat> if you proclaim from the pulpit the truth of God, then it did exactly what God wanted it to do. And if nobody was converted, that's what he wanted it to do, to harden them, to leave them inexcusable. And that's a tragic and sad thing, and I hate to have to say it, but it's true. Anybody else before we move on? Okay. The Greek word translated witness is the same word from which we get our English word martyr. Okay, so that's where the word martyr comes from. It's from that Greek word witness. And Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in, in one sense, what he's telling the apostles, you are going to be my martyrs and attest the truth of God by your sufferings. Which is what happened. All the apostles were martyrs. John, I think, was the only one who lived a longer life, and even he was boiled in oil. So it's by their sufferings that they're bearing witness, as well as their word. And it's the same as same today. You know, it's the church suffering, the church militant that is bearing witness. What did they say? The blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The more you persecute, the more she multiplies. It's kind of an odd thing but it's true. So the extent of the inspired apostolic influence would be worldwide. These martyrs, their witnesses, they witness Christ rise, risen from the dead and their martyrdom, that would be, have an influence that would be worldwide. And we see that true today across the globe. To the very ends of the earth, their witness and ours after theirs would and will make an impact for eternity. And this is how God means it. This is evangelism. And, you know, we talk about individual evangelism, we'll talk more about it later, but corporate evangelism, the very fact that we meet together for worship routinely on the Lord's Day is a witness. So if you say to yourself, boy, I haven't done any evangelism for like 15 years. Well, if you've attended church, and I'm not relieving us of our individual responsibility by saying this, but if you've attended church and supported the local congregation, you are bearing witness Every time you take that supper, the powers of heaven witness you witnessing. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He's right. Sinners from all over the world, every tribe and people will be gathered to Christ by the gospel and the witness of God's people. And the Holy Spirit, thankfully, is pleased to employ human witnesses in his work of applying salvation to sinners. So the work of the Holy Spirit is primarily evangelistic. He is the great evangelist of the Trinity. Now, all three of them do it, but he is the one, by common consent, has this responsibility. And he applies salvation, he evangelizes the world, and he's pleased to do that through human witnesses, through us, surprisingly. What's that saying? He can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, which is what he does. 
This work of applying salvation to sinners cannot, is not and cannot be achieved by means of human strength or ingenuity. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's only by divine power, which means that we ought to be a praying people, praying for those to whom we bear witness. It's only when the Spirit came upon them that the apostles became effective witnesses for Christ. If you want to be an effective witness, then I think prayer is essential. The book of Acts is the best commentary on the words of Jesus as the gospel spread to Rome. You remember that Luke follows that outline. Jerusalem started first, what, nine chapters or so? Maybe 11. Judea and Samaria, Philip goes. Um, It spreads out. And then finally we find Paul at the end of the book of Acts in Rome, bearing witness even to those in Caesar's household. So it's the witness of the church in the fallen world, testifying to God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. And his words are a command, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, his words are a command indicating what they ought to do, you'll be my witnesses, and a prediction of what they would do, you'll be my witnesses. So do you see? It's both. It's sort of like the Ten Commandments. They're commands you shall have no other gods before me. And they're predictions. Because you're recipients of my grace, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what's going to happen to my people. They're commands and predictions at the same time. So we are to be witnesses. It's a command. And we will be witnesses. It's a prediction. Any questions on this particular slide? Okay. So the apostles were appointed as bearers and organs of divine revelation. There are no apostles today. Uh, somebody sent me a little meme, not a meme, it was a, it's like a website thing. Was it you, Don? Somebody. <laughs> Sorry. But it was this person claiming to be the apostle of some church. And, you know, the first question is, did you see the risen Christ, you know, in the flesh? There are no more apostles. They were appointed as bearers and organs of divine revelation. And they serve as the foundation of the new covenant church. It's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. There you go. Good minds think alike. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In the Jewish legal system... An apostle was a person who had the legal power to represent another. So when he showed up in the court, he could function as that person. He had the authority to speak as that person, to decide as that person, to act as that person. That was an apostle. So the spirit endowed, prepared, enabled the apostles to serve as legal representatives of Christ. They actually represented the risen Christ. They had that delegated authority, and they could speak for him. That's an apostle. Nobody today has that authority. In some church traditions, you'll find that oftentimes their leaders like to be called apostles, and it's crazy. It's just wrong. It's not biblical. Their testimony is the unique, plural, once-for-all witness to Christ that serves as our foundation. So when you and I bear witness... 
we're building upon the witness that was born by the apostles, who were representatives of the great faithful witness, Jesus Christ. The Gospels attest the person and work of Jesus. The apostles testify of his bodily resurrection, which is true. There are three that testify, says John, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son, the spirit and the water and the blood. And there's been a debate throughout the centuries as to what the water and the blood refer to. Um, typically, typically, I think it does have to do ongoing and ongoing with baptism and the Lord's Supper. But initially it was, I think, when the soldier pushed the spear into his side, what came out? Water and blood. <clears throat> He was actually dead. Then he rose from the dead. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So you find there Judas vacated his place. Matthias becomes an apostle and he bears witness. All subsequent witness, yours and mine, is based upon, it's governed by their infallible apostolic testimony. So if we're going to talk about evangelism, you can see how important the Word of God is. That is the foundation and the governor of our bearing witness. God provides ongoing testimony to Christ through the church age from credible witnesses. Credible. Sadly, in our day, the church has lost much credibility. All the scandals in this country have undermined the witness of the church. Credible witnesses are important. The world needs to have credible witnesses. Jesus calls all his disciples to be witnesses to the world in both word and deed. As salt, we preserve and enhance the taste. Some people may not listen to what you say, but they will watch what you do. And if you're merciful and kind, at least they can understand that. You preserve and enhance the taste. And as light, we illuminate and instruct others by word. We share the truth of Christ. So as new covenant witnesses, we do fulfill the command and the prediction that we'll be witnesses to the end of the earth. Rob? Repentance. Um, yeah, you're a sinner and you're going to fail every single day, just like me. But if there is sincere repentance and the fruit of repentance, then I think that lends credibility. Uh, it's those that put on this facade. They have the form of godliness but deny its power. <clears throat> and we see that all the time today. You know, None of us are perfect. We're all going to sin. But it is that idea of the fruit of repentance, I think, that brings credibility to the profession of faith. Is there somebody else, another hand back there? Was that you, Alex? Did you have something? Okay. So evangelism itself is derived from the Greek word euangelion, which means gospel or gospelizing. It means spreading the gospel by public preaching or personal witness. Formal or informal, 
either one. And God uses both. And we're commanded to do both. Preaching and personal witness. All Christians, every one of us, are commanded to evangelize always and everywhere. We're to bear witness in whatever way we can. Word, deed. We're not all called to preach, but every Christian is called to communicate the truth. All your saints shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. God will not leave himself without witness. And that's by and large you and me. (laughs) Why he would use us, I don't know. Because it's oftentimes hard to find credible witness bearing. But he does. As Christians, we're disciples of the great prophet who now exercises his ministry through us, the Lord Jesus, of course. Just as we are priests and kings, we're told in Revelation 1, so we are prophets in the New Testament sense of that term. We're not We're not prophets like the apostles and prophets. We're, I don't know what the word would be, demi-prophets, sub-prophets. Jesus Christ is the prophet and his prophetic ministry is exercised through us. Put it that way. Formally in the public ministry, informally in our relationships with others. So when you share the gospel in whatever form, however deep, It is the prophetic ministry of Jesus being exercised through you. We exercise delegated authority as deputy kings of the great king. We pray for the salvation and sanctification of sinners and saints as deputy priests. And we bear witness to Christ among our family, our friends, and our contacts as deputy prophets of the great prophet. So that's important. We are deputy kings, deputy priests, deputy prophets, and we evangelize. Some of us do it on the front line. Some of us do it publicly. Some of us do it with our family and friends a little more subtly. But however we do it, we're deputy prophets. Since the love of God has been poured out in our hearts, we evangelize for his glory. Here we find the motivation. And since we love our neighbors as ourselves... We evangelize them for their own good. I remember a number of years ago here at the church, we, we decided one year to um, have everybody focus on praying for one or two neighbors. Do you remember that? I don't know if any of you were... Anyway, so we were supposed to pr- pray daily for our next-door neighbors or whatever neighbor you wanted and pray for opportunities to evangelize. And so I prayed for our next-door neighbors. It was very close, you know. And that was like, what, eight or nine years ago. And that relationship has just been getting sweeter every year. And this past weekend, we, uh, we had a, Linda and I had a wonderful conversation with them outside, and we did something very minor for them for their house. And she came over with this wonderful cake, you know, and gave it to us. And it was just a neat thing. And we haven't yet had those deeper conversations, but we've had a couple. And it's just neat to see how God will give us opportunities to bear witness along with our prayers, if we're serious. It's a wonderful thing. And even if you feel inadequate, it doesn't matter. You know enough to bear witness to the truth of Christ. You don't have to be a theologian to bear witness. 
Our mission requires us to be wise, discerning, skillful, and winsome as we communicate the truth. You can't just clobber them over the head. You can't tell them everything they're doing wrong. They're sinners. But we are to be wise, speaking the truth seasonably, discerning who is our neighbor, who is our friend, skillful in the light that we have in communicating that and winsome. Any questions before I move on? <clears throat> yes, Jack. We can take on these roles of deputy, prophet, priest, and king. What's the separator with um, the apostate like an apostle, where there's no deputy apostle role for us today? Yeah, good question. <clears throat> if we take on the role of deputy, priest, prophet, and king, why isn't there a role of deputy prophets? <clears throat> In a sense, there is. And I'm glad you asked that, because, because they're the foundation. The apostolic ministry is continuing through the witness of the church. So in one sense, we are deputy apostles. Not formally, we're not ordained to it, we have no authority of our own. But because we speak in the name of the apostles, who spoke in the name of Jesus, there is authority that comes with it. Like when you join the church, and you're under the authority of the elders in the session... You know, the question is, do, I, do you have to do everything I tell you? And the answer is no. Do you have to come shovel my drive if I want you to? No. Do you have to repent if I tell you to turn away from sin? Yes. So insofar as my instruction concurs with Scripture, there's authority, apostolic authority. That's a great question. Yeah. Okay. God has supreme power. He wields all authority. He is the almighty ruler. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, admitted that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. He rules all. As king, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. I know this is a sticking point for some. It's difficult for us to embrace. But he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, especially concerning angels and men. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can make all the plans you want, but God is in control. That's comforting for the believer. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So if whoever you want as a candidate to take office, don't worry. God can direct his heart. He's sovereign, right? No reason for anxiety. The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That word all things is unqualified. All things. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Okay? He's king. That's what a king does. He is judge at the same time, and he will hold every person responsible for the choices that the person makes. Sovereignty, responsibility. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We're responsible. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what I'm trying to do here is show you that the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and you make free choices for which you're accountable. Okay, the Bible teaches both, and this comes into play for evangelism. Some people will say, why evangelize if he's sovereign? Right? He's going to pick him, get him in the kingdom anyway, so why evangelize? Well, because he's a judge, and you're responsible. I'm responsible. Let's move on. I mean, you can ask questions now. It's fine. Um, but there's more to this. <laughs> can I move on? Oh, that's okay, Teresa. Yeah, well, um, one person put it this way, you pray as if God is in control and you act as if you're in control, you know? Which you understand God is sovereign, but you pray. Why, why would we pray if he's not sovereign? There's no reason to pray to a God who is impotent, right? So we pray. We understand he's in control. We understand he's going to direct our steps, but we've got to make some decisions. You've got to plan. So we plan... Always recognizing Semper Gumby, as the uh, missions committee used to tell me on our missions team. Semper Gumby, always flexible. Um, We plan, and he directs our steps. I get so frustrated if my plan is interrupted. I'm awful. You know, why is this person... Well, back to traffic again. Why is this person going so slow? I need to get there. I'm late. Lord... He knows exactly what he's doing. So I need to trust in his sovereignty. Make my plan, but he might change it. Yeah. This is what we call an unavoidable and insoluble antinomy. It's an inexplicable truth. I can't explain it. We've talked about this many times. God is sovereign. You're responsible. To our minds, that seems absurd. But Scripture teaches these twin truths. If God says it, we believe it, even though we can't understand it. It's not by understanding that we believe. It's by faith that we understand. The Bible is content to let these two things exist side by side, so we have to accept it. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. God is sovereign. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. He's responsible. Lord, what are you talking about? You predetermined it, and yet Judas is responsible? Yeah, that's exactly what it teaches. There are other antinomies in Scripture, the Trinity. It's one God, three persons. Three persons, one God. How do you explain that? The incarnation. He's God. What is it? Is he God or man? He's he's God-man. Mystical union. 
We're joined to Christ in this spiritual, mystical union together. We're joined somehow, but it doesn't make any sense. So these other things we understand, and the same goes for sovereignty and responsibility. We try to solve them, which is rationalism, or we try to get rid of these things, Pelagianism, Docetism, Unitarianism. We can't, we can't rest with this antinomy going on in our head. <clears throat> How can he be sovereign and I be responsible? I don't know. And I'm not supposed to know. It's beyond me as a creature. Why is it too much to receive God's revelation and wisdom concerning these things? Why is that too much? Why is it so hard for us to say, you know what, Lord, you're infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. There are so many things that are so far beyond me, all I can do is just receive it. I can't figure it out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're responsible. Why? Because it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He even gives you the willing to do this. The very willing to show up in church is because God's at work in you. So there we have that classic text. Sovereignty, responsibility. <clears throat> and sinful creatures <clears throat> have no right to find fault with or to question the infinite all-wise God. The relationship between sovereignty and responsibility is not against reason. It's infinitely beyond reason. That's why I stand up here and say, I don't know. But I'm required to teach both. He is an infinite, eternal, unchangeable being who is incomprehensible to finite creatures. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is, as it says, unsearchable. You'll spend eternity joyfully exploring God. And you'll never exhaust what you explore. Any questions before I move on? Oh, Rob? Yeah, the antinomy, <clears throat> the, um, the paradox is an apparent contradiction. The antinomy is a contradiction of two truths, right? So God is sovereign. He ordains every thought that you'll have, every word that you speak, every step that you take. He ordained it, every single one, every hair of your head. And yet... You are free to choose and responsible for your choice. Those are two truths that seem to be totally contradictory. How can that be? That's an antinomy. The Big Bang, I believe in the Big Bang. The difference is God is the one who banged it, right? They don't think God banged it. They just think, well, it just happened. So I can talk to them and say, hey, yeah, Big Bang. Let's go. Let's talk about it. Where did it come from? How did it begin? Dare? <laughs> the banged or the big bang? Yeah. He banged it? Yeah. Yeah, it's probably not the... I didn't even think about that. Sorry. That, that's... Yeah. Don't quote me on that. 
Yes, that's, 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 God said bang, and there it was, right? So, Jonathan? That's contradiction. You just say yes. Well, I'm sorry, what was that, Sue? So, Yeah. Look, I don't understand it, but the Word of God teaches both. And He's so big and so infinite and so powerful that He can handle it. You know, if, um, if I told my child, if I packed my bag, my big suitcase, and I told my child, pick that up and take it down and put it in the car, will you? Sit there, go like this, and try to get down to the car. He couldn't handle it. And I'd say, you know what? There are some things that are just too much for you to handle. Well, this is one of them. It's too much for me to handle. All I can do is receive it. And don't be afraid. God is content to let this lie in his word as both just truths. And if you tell the unbeliever, well, this is what God tells us. And the believer says, well, that's absurd. Well, it may seem absurd. But how do you explain an infinite God? I can't. What does that mean? No boundaries. Time can't bound him. Space can't bound him. He is infinite. He is everywhere present at the same time. I can't explain it. And that's a God who's worthy of worship. If he's a God I can figure out, he's not worthy of worship. Um, Brian? Right. And by necessity, there's therefore a law given. And there's still a pretty wide group of scientists today who think that same thing. There's actually a ruling elder in the PCA who is the chair of computational chemistry wow. at the University of Georgia. So this is like the nerd of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he uses computers to study things about molecular interactions and the way atoms work that, I don't know, my eyes will roll back in my head if you actually try to understand it. Right. But these guys think they're looking at God's actions and how he set up the world. So when you hear somebody say, oh, scientists say this, you can't believe science and also believe the Bible. It's actually kind of true because you can't believe in science without laws and theorems. Right. And you can't have a world that works the way it works unless it was set up. That's right. Just something to think about when you hear the somewhat uh, lazy arguments that frequently hit the news now. No, that's a very good point. And I think, you know, I always go to Psalm 111 where it says, um, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. And I always think of the scientists when I look at that verse because they're looking at the works of the Lord and they're delighting in it and exploring what he's done. And I think you're right, the laws of nature and so forth. So yeah, absolutely. Jonathan? You're right. Right. And uh, so and I feel like that gets miscommunicated with unbelievers who, who read this and say, oh, we're just accepting irrationality. Right. And we can, be, we can re- reject 
That's right. It's a, it's a very good point, Jonathan, that it's not a true contradiction because God will not contradict himself. But in our minds, it just seems absolutely contradictory. We, we can't understand how these two things can exist together. And to us, that is an antinomy. It is a true, inexplicable truth. We cannot explain it. It's so far beyond our reason. But yeah, God is logical. He's the author of logic. He is a rational God, and he made us in his image as rational creatures. So we think his thoughts after him, and we know that his word does not contradict itself because of the law of non-contradiction, and that's why we can hold these two truths in good conscience. It doesn't contradict. It's an antinomy. We can't explain it, but it doesn't contradict. So thank you for clarifying that. I think I misspoke earlier when I said it contradict. All Christians believe in divine sovereignty because they pray. It's an implicit affirmation of his absolute sovereignty. It's not an attempt to force his hand, but an expression of our dependence. We understand he's sovereign. When we pray and give thanks for our conversion, we affirm his truth. Right? Thank you, God, for the grace that you extended to me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be converted. Well, you're admitting that he's sovereign. We know he's responsible for our salvation because we know our own hearts. It's his work. He convinced us, enlightened, renewed, saved us. Even when we were dead, dead people don't believe. So which, which precedes the other, faith or regeneration? You have to have regeneration first, then faith. He has to give you a new heart if you're going to believe. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And so that term saved, you're saved, you're passive. You didn't save yourself, you've been saved. Even in the language we use, we respond and acknowledge his sovereignty. When we pray for the conversion of others, which is a large part of evangelism, we affirm the truth of God's sovereignty. Why would we intercede for them if God himself was powerless? Why ask him to convert somebody if he can't do it? He enlightens the mind, changes the heart, transforms the lives. We pray to him. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, so in prayer, we pray and affirm his sovereignty and our dependence upon him. Some are tempted to overemphasize the human responsibility. They become pragmatic and calculating. It's a battle of wills. I'm going to preach this gospel so persuasively, and we're going to have all the lights down low, and the music kind of soft, and the smoke machine going, and I'm going to convince you. It's a battle of wills. It's our responsibility. We're moral agents who have to evangelize, but while we must bear witness to Christ... Only God can save. The decisive factor is not our method, but the power of the Lord. It's not how persuasive you are, how many points you can win, how many truths you can pack into it. You don't walk away saying, oh, I blew the whole thing and that person will go to hell because I didn't evangelize well enough. That's not true. So it can relieve you of false guilt. Others are tempted to overemphasize a divine sovereignty. They used to think of God as a spectator, human responsible. 
He's not the author, but then they repented of this. They swing the opposite way. And they go to the neglect the duty, they neglect the duty of evangelizing. Well, I used to think it was all me. Now I realize it's all God. I'm not going to evangelize. That's the opposite error. And they come to suspect all strategy, enterprise. They think evangelism is man-centered, unbiblical. And so they swing the opposite way. But God has revealed that he works out his will in and through our prayers and our efforts. Packer's right. God did not teach us the reality of his rule in order to give an excuse for neglecting his orders. You and I have marching orders. We're to be evangelizing. Whatever you think of his sovereignty, I don't care. We are to communicate and bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe and embrace sovereignty and responsibility. One interviewer said to Spurgeon, can you reconcile these two truths to one another? Sovereignty and responsibility. You know what Spurgeon said? I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Isn't that great? So that's the first, first lesson. Um, any final comments? <clears throat> Brief? Anybody? Lord, please open the eyes of his or her heart. Please draw him or her to Christ. Please bless whatever meager thing I can say to use in their salvation. Lord, please do your work because it is up to him to change the heart. Yeah. But he determines not just the ends that you're saved, but he determined every single step along the way that brought you to Christ. Every good thing in your life, every bad thing in your life, every person that you interacted with, he ordained it all. So he ordains the means as well as the end. So he will use you as a means to the end of somebody else's salvation. Isn't that wonderful? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be a part of this grand plan of saving a whole church, but he does use us. And in eternity, we're going to rehearse all the wonderful things that he did through us, in us, and by us. Remember the conversation you had back in 2023 with so-and-so? Well, you don't know it, but that led to me seeking out this person who shared the gospel. So you were used, and God ordained it, and you chose to do it, and those go perfectly together. It's an amazing thing. Ray? Right. Yeah, that's right. We don't know who the elect are. You're exactly right. And it gets back to that same conversation we had about prayer. Why do we pray? He commands me. Why do I evangelize? He commands me. If I don't understand anything about his sovereignty, at least I know what this is a command. <laughs> so I do it. You know, that's bedrock Christianity. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to bear witness to the great faithful witness himself, even Jesus Christ. We acknowledge our inadequacy. We acknowledge our hesitancy. And we pray for the Spirit to help us to be faithful, credible witnesses to your grace through Jesus Christ. 
Please prepare us for worship now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.